0: I had a return flight for six six months after I arrived, and uh, I just never just never took it.
1: Hi everyone! Welcome to this episode of Global Get Down. I'm your co-host Nana,
2: and I'm your co-host Teresa,
1: and we're joined today by Clark Schofield. He is the executive director of Collective Aid, a grassroots humanitarian aid organization operating in Serbia, Bosnia and Herzegovina, and France, which supports refugees, migrants, and asylum seekers on the move. Hi, Clark. Welcome to the show, and thanks for joining us today.
0: Hi, it's so good to be here.
1: Clark,
2: I mean, I just wanted to start off by saying, I mean, it's been like... Like three years since I saw you, so I mean, just for everybody listening, uh, Clark and I volunteered together for a short time in Serbia with Collective Aid uh, before he became the director. So this was quite early on in the organization's history. Um, but I mean, you know, we've caught up a little bit on Instagram from time to time. But like, what's up? Like, how how's it going? How are you? Uh,
0: it's been it's been incredibly busy. I mean, uh, when you were here, we were a kitchen project primarily. Uh, working, I think, exclusively in Serbia. I don't know if we had moved to Bosnia yet.
2: I don't think so. I think it was mainly in, yeah. in Serbia at Obrenovac. Um, early days. <laughs> yeah. Um, I've got to ask. I mean, first <laughs> of all, I still think about all the dogs there. <laughs> yeah. For context, Nana, the the part, like the, the neighborhood, I guess, where the... Is it the former warehouse now? I don't know if it's still the same location. That neighborhood that they were operating in, there were so many dogs.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Shorba is still around. I don't know if you remember Shorba. I
2: remember Shorba. I remember there was also another dog that oh, I probably can't say the name on like on air. (laughs) Yeah,
0: Yeah, he's still alive, still kicking. That's still running around town with plastic bottles in his mouth.
2: I love that. I love that so much. Uh, right, so Clark, I mean, I think, you know, first of all, we want to kind of get a little bit into the context of your work. Um, you know, the news of the refugee crisis is really, it's its long faded from the spotlight, honestly, but can you sort of give us a quick update on what the situation is like now in Europe?
0: Not much has changed in that there are still uh, millions of displaced people uh, trying to seek safety in Europe. Unfortunately, what has changed is the overall fortress approach to, to Europe. Some may think I am too tough in my proposals on migration. But trust me, if we don't agree on them, then you will see some really tough proposals. Uh, walls are going up. The EU has invested heavily in preventing people from making it into, into Western Europe uh and it has been successful primarily in creating more cruelty and uh more danger for for people who are only seeking a a safer life Uh, so the story of migration in europe is one of cruelty eu-sponsored cruelty but also a story of normal people really standing up and and trying to make a difference
1: So what does collective aid do exactly? Um, What kind of void does NGO work fulfill with respect to government responses to the crisis?
0: Yeah, collective aid has done uh, many things from food projects in the beginning to distributions of of hygiene items, psychosocial support through our community center, We have done water and sanitation uh, and hygiene projects. Uh, We have medics on our team, but our our primary focus right now is on emergency support for people living outside of official camp systems. Uh, And we're doing that right now through uh, our project in Calais where we provide NFI, which is non-food items. So blankets, sleeping bags, and clothing primarily to the approximately 2,000 people who are are sleeping rough in Calais and Dunkirk in northern France. In Bosnia, we're also running an NFI project uh, in the streets of Sarajevo, which is kind of a a transitory part of Bosnia as people are are headed to the borders or are pushed back and, and go to Sarajevo. And in Serbia, we have two distinct projects, one on Serbia's northern border with Hungary where we provide quite a comprehensive service actually from NFI to first aid, um, showers, laundry, scabies treatment, and border and internal violence monitoring. And this week actually we launched a new project in the Belgrade city center doing water and sanitation uh showers and showers and laundry so really we're just looking at where the biggest gaps are unfortunately in europe uh those gaps are usually everyone sleeping outside of the official camp system which is a huge number of a huge number of people
2: you had mentioned that collective aid helps a lot of people who are outside of the camp system so they're living on the streets living rough basically is there a reason that there are so many people who are living outside of the camp system? Like, is it a matter of space? Is it a matter of governance? Like, can you just tell us a little bit?
0: Yeah. It's a, it's a multifaceted issue. And it's a combination of, of quite a few things. There are tons of examples of there not being enough space, but even when there is space, you usually have a population of people choosing to choosing to stay outside and people do that for, uh, a lot of different reasons, but uh, quite tragically, there are. It's very common to hear stories of uh, physical and sexual violence inside of the camps, perpetrated by uh, either the guards or or other people who are who are staying there. So it can be quite unsafe, especially if you fall uh, within a particularly vulnerable group. Um, like a like an unaccompanied minor or a member of the LGBTQ community so that's that's one reason is that the the conditions in the camp can be quite bad they are often over capacity also people don't want to be in a camp in Serbia that's no one's final destination there are basically no opportunities uh, for a refugee or asylum seeker in Serbia even, on the off chance that they are granted asylum in Serbia, the chances of them getting a job, for example, are are slim to none. Serbia is already a place with quite high unemployment. So you can imagine that they may not prioritize asylum seekers for those limited jobs. So people want to move on. and And because there are really no safe and legal routes to seeking asylum in Europe, uh, by design by the way <laughs> there are no safer legal routes people have to take unsafe uh, unsafe routes crossing making irregular crossings through you know holes in in barbed wire fences electrified fences um, yeah so it's a it's a combination
2: right and so most of the people that you're serving in Serbia and Bosnia and Herzegovina then are essentially people who have found themselves stuck along the Balkan route uh, trying to get to Western Europe as borders have been closed. Can you maybe tell us what the Balkan route is and and what it looks like today?
0: Yeah, the Balkan route was. Uh, there have been multiple versions of the Balkan route, uh, beginning when people would would go through Greece uh, and make their way to Western Europe, kind of taking the the shortest, easiest route, which which took people through usually Serbia and then. Hungary or Croatia and on. Uh, That route has changed multiple times over the last few years, uh, including a major shift into Bosnia for the first time in 2018. Uh, Those numbers went from maybe Mm -hmm. a few hundred a year to 25,000 a year over the course of of one year. So the Balkan route is still active and people are still successfully crossing into, into Europe. Um, there is quite an active smuggler scene, which is how many people, how many people cross, um, there are, there are holes in the, in the fences, um, whether, whether through corruption or, or, or physical physical paths through the numbers have dropped dramatically from a million, I believe in 2015, who crossed through Serbia to now in the tens of thousands, usually around 20 to 30 a year. So the Balkan route is definitely still active. It has changed, uh, as, as walls have been built, uh, and in many ways has become more brutal for the people who are making these journeys. Because when there are when there are protected borders, there are people protecting those borders and those people turn towards cruelty. Many migrants and refugees say their belongings were taken by the Greek border guards before being beaten and stripped off and sent back to Turkey. What people don't seem to understand is that when someone has fled their home and has chosen to leave their families behind, to make this long, awful journey, uh, often alone, uh, leaving behind everything that that you know and you love, uh, violence on a border will probably not be the thing that stops someone, and so it it's just torture.
2: Absolutely, it's. I mean, I know I've, you know, even from stuff that you share on Instagram that I've seen, just hearing and seeing things about uh, border guard brutality really is, is tough to see. And it's, it's really shameful. Um, But now that we've gotten some of the context, I mean, I really want to focus a little bit on you now in your role. Um, So let's go back to your life in America real quick. Um, Because this is, I think, kind of an interesting story. So you were initially studying at university in Mm -hmm. Mississippi. Yeah. And then you ended up in construction. And then somehow you ended up in Serbia. So fill in the blanks a little bit for us in that that story.
0: My my working life has taken many unexpected turns, uh, from my first major job as a butcher um, through to lawn care and and working retail. Uh, I've been working a long time, and I've done a lot of different things. but yeah, I, I actually left university at the, uh, at the beginning of my senior year to pursue a career in, in construction development and management um, and did that for a few years. Quite, quite enjoyed it at first. And then as I began to become more aware of, of inequality and, and rising inequality, around the world and in the united states it felt really it felt like it was harming me to to work in a in a role where i was primarily making incredibly wealthy people more wealthy Uh, and i was also enriching myself but that brought me no joy Um, and so i i left quite quickly not knowing exactly what i would do I moved to Seattle and started working with an organization that supports people experiencing addiction and homelessness. Um, And that furthered my my education and my belief that uh, working for money was not the path for me. Not not that it's um, not that it's not a valid path for for many people. Uh, But that I would never be happy, happy doing that. So I was in Seattle for a few years and and got to know a lot of people that society generally either rejects or is just uneducated about. Uh, Obviously, the the topics of addiction and homelessness in the United States and uh, all over the world are are misunderstood. And people have a lot of prejudices against homeless and addicted people. Uh, and I was meeting real people every day, uh, and they were a lot like me, uh, you know. And I could see how I could be in that situation. And that's that's usually how change happens in your life, right? Especially when it comes to how you interact with other people. After a few years in Seattle, the refugee crisis, the European refugee crisis, really started to. To make the, the tiny news.
1: lifeless body washed up on a Turkish beach was his son, not the first one. I had some
0: friends who started to volunteer with refugees in Greece. And we would talk and they would tell me about the, the situation. And, and I, saw, I saw the same story, basically, of, of a group of people who have been used by governments and by the media to tell a very specific story that accomplishes their goals, but based on what I had learned in Seattle, I knew that that story was probably not true, certainly not complete, and it just felt like such an overwhelming thing. You know, as, as someone who who wants to be very empathetic to the people around me, it really hit me hard just seeing this, this massive, massive crisis and seeing governments and large NGOs do very little about it at least proportionally to how large they are and, and the opportunity that they have to do something about it. Uh, and it just seemed like there was no no will to do so. But I saw my friends who were in their early 20s or younger. I saw organizations that had popped up out of nowhere, run by people who had never necessarily worked in, in that specific field before. And they were doing innovative, uh, creative and and compassionate work to to support people on the move and and they were doing it in a way which was flexible unlike I had ever seen in a large NGO. Uh, it was responsive to the to the actual needs of of people and there was so little bureaucracy and money that that work could be done much much more simply than uh, I think most of us have seen with these huge ad campaigns, you know, like your your UNICEFs and fill in the blank. So it felt like a really easy way for me to do something. And I went into it quite ignorant about what it would actually look like. It's been incredibly eye-opening. It's taught me a lot about about myself and my own motivations for doing things. But I still, I still believe in In the idea of people who exist outside of these huge institutions just showing up and and starting to work
2: so i mean this is just kind of crazy for me to think about so you've sort of come from mississippi go to seattle you end up in serbia you're sort of confronting this kind of context and you started off just as a regular volunteer um Mm -hmm. how did you work your way up to to the position that you're in now
0: Well, I didn't really, (laughs) Uh, it wasn't, it wasn't as uh, intentional as that. Uh, When I arrived, the organization was still quite young, Uh, it was only a few months old. And the majority of the people who started the organization had actually already left by the time that I was here. There was an incredible group of volunteers here when I arrived who were so dedicated to continuing the work that was started by the founders of the organization, which was called Belgrade at the time. Uh, but they never planned to do it forever. And slowly those people started to leave or started to plan their departures. And uh, the the person, the really incredible, at the time, I believe she was 18. She was 19, Magda. I
2: think, yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Uh, a student from Germany ended up being the, the interim director after the, the founders left and she was such a powerhouse and just like kept things going and worked so hard to, to maintain the work that we were doing. Um, but it wasn't a, it wasn't a permanent solution. So actually the founder called in one of, uh, one of his friends, someone that he had worked with before to become the director and when he arrived we had some conversations and he basically asked me to be the co-director with him so i arrived in july and stein the the co-director arrived in september i believe and then stein left in march of the next year of march of 2018 and so that's kind of how i became the director was uh, a happy accident i guess
2: right That's just, that's kind of crazy to me. I mean, how long were you initially planning on, on being in Serbia? Because I don't, was it? (laughs) I had a
0: return flight for six, six months after I arrived. Right. And uh, I just never, just never took it.
2: Wow. So you just, you ended up staying in Serbia. I mean, how did your, how did your friends and family back home sort of react to that, to that news just out of curiosity? I mean, I feel like Serbia is kind of, at least in like North America, it's not exotic, but it's definitely somewhere that people don't generally think a lot about.
0: (laughs) Yeah, people don't have much, uh, people don't know much about Serbia, maybe except for uh, the wars in the 90s. I don't think anyone was that surprised. Uh, I, I hadn't made any plans to permanently move back to the United States. I knew that I wanted to work with refugees for some time. I wasn't planning on staying here specifically for very long. I I planned to continue my journey and kind of trace the route that that refugees were taking from Serbia moving backwards to country of origin. Um, and so yeah, people weren't people weren't that surprised that that I didn't come back. I don't think anyone necessarily expected that I would here as long as I have, Um, but everyone's been incredibly supportive of of my work here.
1: And could you perhaps walk us through a typical day as a director or an executive director of an NGO?
0: I saw that question and and kind of laughed to myself a little bit because uh, I get asked that quite a bit and it's always an incredibly difficult question to answer only because what I do every day changes dramatically. But basically my role is is made up of a few main parts. Uh, It's a lot of communication, communication with our volunteers, with the people leading our volunteers across all of the sites, with our partner organizations, donors, potential partners. Uh, I would say the the majority of my work is communication. And that takes some different forms and it has some different focuses. Um, but I spend most of the day either on the phone or emailing people, or back in the olden days, uh, meeting people in, in person. Um, I... What's that? I don't know. <laughs> I really view a primary part of my role as supporting the teams that we have on the ground, uh, across Europe, they are so incredible. And, and, and the people who are on the ground in the field every day are really the ones who, who make collective aid, uh, obviously it takes all types and it takes all types of work, but, um, I view my role as making sure that they can they can do their work, that they feel supported, um, that they have the resources they need to do so, um, and it's really an honor to get to work with so many people. I mean, we haven't kept great count, but we've had over a thousand volunteers from over sixty countries volunteer with us in the last four years. Uh, so I've I've been able to meet incredible people, and it's it's brought so much. Uh, joy and and I've learned so much from from the people who work with us. Uh, And then another another big part is is financial. Um, We are an independent grassroots organization. There are no big pots of money for us to pull from. Uh, Every penny, every project is really is really fought for. So I spend a lot of my time working to to make sure that we have the financial resources we need. To uh, to do the work that we're doing.
1: Yeah, um, we were wondering if you could describe what it was like facing the refugee crisis for the first time. Uh, did you have any expectations um, coming from the states? Uh, and you know what it was like for the working for the first time with uh, volunteers and migrants, refugees. Was it a shock? Um, was it an emotional experience? Tell us about that.
0: It was certainly emotional. Um, I don't know if I would say that it was a shock, though. Many of the stories that I heard in my early days volunteering were were certainly shocking. Um, I think it was it was just an incredibly humbling experience at the beginning uh, to see what what a huge need there was. How limited we actually were uh, to do anything that would have a, a huge impact um, or a large scale impact. Um, I mean, you you just sit and talk to people and and you hear these stories that that just seem unbelievable and and it really makes you question how anyone could, could be against accepting refugees there's such a historic precedent Uh, we we can look back on history and see uh how we judge people based on how they treat the most vulnerable people in our world so it's it's not a it's not a guess and i think that just that really that really sunk in like oh it's actually It's actually really horrifying that so many people are able to demonize this population. My line consists of hardworking
2: men and women. It's people like them we can thank for the welfare system that our lying politicians are now giving away to imported scum.
0: It says something really scary about the human condition, that it's so easy for people to, to just write off millions as not being worthy of, you know, coming into our countries.
1: Yeah, definitely. And, you know, something that is deeply worrisome is obviously the rise of far-right movements and parties across Europe, right? Um, I'm wondering how you think the growth of hate crime, intolerance, and xenophobia in Western political systems will... Impact the work that NGOs do in Europe, or if you've already felt the impacts?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, the these far right movements have always have always been there, um, but we do seem to be in a moment where those movements are are being allowed to gain traction. From France's Front National to Germany's Alternative for Deutschland to the neo-Nazis of Golden Dawn in Greece, far-right populists are grabbing the headlines and seem to be on the rise across Europe. They're being granted legitimacy by our politicians and by the media. Uh, And it's already quite bad and it's getting progressively worse seemingly very quickly. Uh, If you look at... Greece, for example, right before the COVID-19 outbreak, there was a huge, just an explosion of, of anti-refugee sentiment, violent attacks on people in the streets, people reporting on where people were staying, where refugees were staying so that others could go and and harm them. The same thing was happening to to volunteers working there. And while... While the initial wave of COVID seemed to kind of dampen that, it has reemerged recently. Um, there have been cases of of arson um, against uh, volunteer headquarters and and hubs and places that services are being provided, and and. Uh, so many violent attacks towards people on the move and the people supporting them. In Serbia, Serbia has an unfortunate history with, with some extremist uh, nationalist movements throughout the years. And many of those groups that were active during the, during the Yugoslav wars in the nineties have have kind of re-emerged, or at least people who were involved in those movements then have re-emerged now uh, in in uh a new anti-migrant wave of of anger and and hatred. So uh only last weekend, I believe it was Sunday, there was a there was a an event organized by one of these groups uh, and they, they actually used the word cleanse. Uh, that was their, that was their goal was to cleanse the park of, of the people who, who have been staying there during the day or, or sleeping there because they have nowhere else to go. Thankfully, right. there were also groups who organized a counter protest and there ended up being at least as many people, as many people there, but. It is certainly, uh, it's certainly scary. And, and we know that it's going to get worse. Uh, that's that's the path that this is going. So we're trying to prepare ourselves and and make sure that we can carry out our work safely, but also that as much as possible, we protect the people that, that we're here to support, even, even within our, our limited power to do so.
2: Right, that's, I mean, that's absolutely terrifying what you just said about, cleanse you know just considering that type of language language but also how that's you know that's played out before in you know Mm -hmm. during Bosnian civil war and the breakup of Yugoslavia so it's I mean it's just it's so horrifying to hear language like that and I think you know being an NGO especially like in your position that's a lot of that's kind of a lot of pressure right to try and protect yourselves in addition to everybody else that you're trying to protect um, it's you know, it's so cool, I think, to see I guess like seeing the humanitarian side of such a terrible situation because, you know, you I think you will see a lot of news about um police brutality, about evictions, about um racism and all this stuff. But then, you know there's there is this other side of the story where people like you clark and and all the people that you work with, i mean, it it does provide a little bit of of hope, I think, um. But we actually, we've got a student question now submitted from one of our fellow international relations and uh, also history student. Uh, Tara Osler wants to know, what can students interested in working with NGOs do to find internships or work after graduating? Or in other words, how how do you kind of get your foot in the door?
0: Well, the, the incredible thing about the grassroots NGO movement is that there's a very low barrier to entry. Uh, We don't require experience to come and volunteer with us. Um, In fact, we love it when people have never worked in the field before, uh, because it's an opportunity to introduce people to the reality of of what people on the move are facing and and what can be done to, to support them. So I think that what would be the most important is to define what it is that you would like to learn and try to find an organization that aligns with that. And there are so many, there are so many across Europe, uh, not only in Europe, where, wherever you are, there are organizations working with refugees. And I would say the vast majority of them would accept volunteers. So the best thing that you can do is just to go do it. Don't be. Uh, don't be too nervous about it. Now we're a few years in, and organizations are quite good at at accepting volunteers and and knowing how to how to make sure that their experience volunteering is a a safe and uh, informative one. Hopefully.
1: Sure. So somebody else asked, um, how has the pandemic affected the way your organization functions? Uh, What kind of technology have you found useful?
0: Hmm. Uh, Well, it has affected the organization differently across the sites that we work. Um, Serbia implemented quite a Quite a strict lockdown policy in the beginning, um, which actually meant that all of our projects here had to shut down uh, for the first two months of of COVID being in Serbia, or at least how they how they perceived that. Uh, in Calais, we managed to keep our operation going, uh, though with with a very low number of volunteers, uh, about a third of the number that we normally need. And so we, we did have to reduce that that service. And similarly to Serbia, it was, it was very difficult to continue working in, in Bosnia. So in the places where we, where we couldn't actively work, we, we focused on building up the foundations of the organization and making sure that we would be ready to go as soon as we could. And that seemed to happen around the middle of June um, that we were able to to start getting getting back to work. We have uh, so many protections in place to make sure that our volunteers stay safe and healthy, uh, but especially that the people we support are not exposed to the virus. Um, Very strict rules about self-isolating before you volunteer with us having a COVID test. If you haven't had the opportunity to self-isolate, uh, we follow all of the, all government rules, plus, uh, a ton of, a ton of other ones, sanitizing all of the touch surfaces and vans after every distribution, uh, masks, obviously, uh, depending on the amount of contact that we have with people in the field. We'll have special clothing that we wear out that's washed every day. Uh, so we've, we've really put a lot of energy into making sure within, within what's possible, uh, with our limited resources and, and also just, not knowing exactly, you know, we're still learning so much about the virus and we're learning new ways to, to protect each other and ourselves. Um, so, so it's evolving. We have, uh, unfortunately we recently had an outbreak of COVID, uh, within our volunteers in Calais, and we had to cease our operations for, uh, fully for 10 days. Uh, thankfully, though, we were able to hand off a lot of the work that we were doing to other organizations and individuals on the ground so that there wasn't a gap of, of essential aid and support to, to people on the move. As far as technology goes, I, I wouldn't point to anything specific. Uh, it's been quite a low-tech uh, response, uh, sanitizer and, and, uh, and masks.
2: Back to the basics. <laughs> <laughs> um, so for people wanting to get involved with collective aid or for anyone who wants to sort of learn more about it, where should they go? How can they get involved?
0: Um, we are on Instagram. You can check us out there to see what we're up to. That's the most up-to-date way to see what we're doing every day. Uh, we're always accepting volunteers. There, It takes a lot of volunteers to to do our work every day. Um, And we really are open to open to anyone, we would love to have you. Uh, At the same time, if you're not able to come and volunteer, there's so many other ways to get involved. Uh, One of the most basic is just to to educate yourself about what's happening. And and then make a point to educate other people. Uh, The more that people know, of the reality that refugees and other displaced people are facing, I think the more chance we have of actually doing something to to help uh, or or something to change the situation. Um, You can put on fundraisers. People have done so many creative things uh, and and raised such incredible, generous amounts of money for, for our work. And and it can't be said enough. Like we we get all of our all of our funding from small groups or individuals. Um, we have fought really hard to stay independent, though there have been opportunities to get larger amounts of funding from sources that we just would have felt pretty uncomfortable taking money from. Uh, so it's a it's an awkward thing for me to talk about, but. One of the one of the huge ways that that someone can support our work is is by donating or by fundraising. I know that it's a it's a difficult time for for many people, and it's not an option for for everyone, and and uh, definitely understand that. But if you have, I always like to encourage creativity when it comes to getting involved with with this work. So if you just have an idea, no matter how wild it may seem to you in the moment, uh, reach out to us and we'll at least hear it. And we would love to, to see if, if we could come up with something.
1: So I want to ask, um, just to wrap up this segment, what has been the biggest lesson that you've learned from mm-hmm. working as an executive director of Collective Aid?
0: Uh, I think that one of the biggest lessons that I've learned has has been to approach every every decision with an incredible amount of humility, recognizing what it is that I don't know. Um, I think that, yeah, I've learned to to really respect the the position that we've been put in, to listen to the people that, that we're here to support and see what they're telling us, what they need. I mean, this is a, this is a lesson, I think, for, for everyone who's in a position where, where they are supporting someone else. It can so quickly become a a case of, of saviorism, social media. I don't know the, the pursuit of the like humanitarian social media fame, which is unfortunately a, a thing. Um, because my experience was primarily in the, in the corporate world, it took a lot of unlearning. Uh, you're not dealing with employees, you're dealing with, with people who are here because they, just because they want to and, and are actually probably making a huge financial sacrifice to be there. Um, I mean, this is a lot of lessons because mm-hmm. there have been, and all of them have been, have been really life-changing to me. Uh, I'm so grateful for the the opportunity to learn from so many different people, such a diverse group of people who who work in this field, from local volunteers to to people on the move to the volunteer the thousand plus volunteers from sixty plus countries. Um, yeah, it's been it's been the coolest experience of my life.
1: Thank you, Clark, for coming on this episode of Global Get Down with Teresa and I. To everyone listening, thanks for tuning in.
0: Thanks so much.